and welcome to Opika's Innovation and Care Collaboration podcast series. My name is Ken McGill. I am a solution-focused care senior scientist here at Opika. And I've had the honor to serve for almost 20 years within a statewide children's system of care. And I have to mention that I am absolutely in love with systems of care, value, the values and principles that are attached, and the way that we all should be working if a family, an individual, is attached to multiple systems. We need to collaborate to provide whole person care. Today, I have the honor to chat with Laura Wallace, and today's show will be highlighting Laura's work, and the title is Engineering Systems, Common Elements in Bridging Systems, an Engineering Perspective. Because Laura's professional background is that she is a professional civil engineer, as well as being an advocate for children's mental health and a member of Idaho's Region 7 Children's Mental Health Subcommittee. And she has been one of the key participants and developers of the Youth Empowerment Services, or YES, which is the implementation of a wraparound service process. And she looks forward to the day where every child and family has access to mental health supports that they need. And what we're going to talk about is too often systems will try to reinvent the wheel, so to speak, when it comes to structuring and planning. And sadly, time and resources are spent starting from square, run, square one rather than incorporating or borrowing from other fields logical frameworks to build upon. We recently had a, a great conversation where uh, she gave, Laura gave, an amazing description how applying engineering principles to human services systems would be more effective and efficient. So that's what today's show is going to capture. So thank you for tuning in, and I am looking forward to having an amazing chat with Laura. All right. Well, I am so excited today. Uh, I have the honor to chat, continue to chat with Laura Wallace. Now, Laura, I've met and she does amazing work in the state of Idaho, uh, but she wears many professional hats. So I'm learning more and more about what I'm going to call Laura a renaissance woman because she really is someone who has um, a professional career in civil engineering. She is also a strong professional advocate in terms of children's mental health and a member of Idaho's Region 7 Children's Mental Health Subcommittee and has served on numerous committees. And I'm sure when you when you and I had spoken that you were sometimes feeling like the professional meeting sitter, sitter inner. Um, <laughs> I, I love that phrase. And um, so but you are someone that I've known um, is is they want to contribute in a way that helps children and families now not later not to wait and say this is the best that we can do so today's show highlighting laura's work regarding engineering systems common elements in bridging systems and engineering perspective is what i put as the title laura but i absolutely am so excited to begin this conversation and to learn more about you and, and to share this with the uh, uh, the folks around the globe. So thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to uh, uh, sit in for this podcast today. 
Well, thanks, Ken. I'm glad to be here. I I have to say that when I was going through college to get my engineering degree, um, I used and then when I started work in the field, I used to joke I'm one of the ten extrovert engineers on the planet, and um, <laughs> no one could quite figure out what to do with me in an office. Not only was I usually one of the only women in an in a civil engineering office, but I was also the only one who was having a conversation and talking out loud. <laughs> and so um, I really have a passion for um, children's mental health uh, healthcare mainly because I'm a parent of a kiddo who had pretty substantial challenges, still does. And um, I think with the families I've worked with over the years, the one commonality I find is that our, we feel very um, lost in our stories. We go through some pretty big and scary things sometimes, and it doesn't seem like it leaves anything better than it found it. Um, my, my dad always said the Boy Scout motto, you know, leave your campsite better than you found it. That's and right. I think when we go through our stories, we don't feel like we left our campsite better. We feel like we left it just blown up into smithereens. Uh, and and there's a sense of loss that you went through all these stages in your life and you feel like you have nothing to show for it. But when um, I work with families who advocate or I'm teaching them to advocate or helping them feel like their voice is important, what I find is that when they change something, it may not help them. It probably won't help them, but it helps the family behind them. All of a sudden, they realize that there is value in their experience and that experience is then going to change something that they didn't like. And they have the they have the ability to retroactively leave their campsite better than they found it. And it gives them hope again. I remember one of the families I worked with uh, very, very early on in my advocacy. Um, she had a lot of contact with child protection because people assumed that her kids mental health was because she was abusing them, which had nothing to do with reality. Her story was very different than that. She had adopted children with intense trauma out of the foster care system, and she was doing everything she could to support these kids. But that's not how the world saw it. And um, she had a letter that she wrote to all of her neighbors explaining what was going on with her kids and saying if they had any concerns to please call her. But if they were not comfortable doing that, she gave them the number to report her to child protection and told them what information they would need to have with them to report her just to make it more efficient if they were going to. And when a parent goes to that level to help someone report them just so that they can be friends with their neighbors mm -hmm. <laughs> um, um, and have a community and create something. I took that letter and I scrubbed the personal names out of it. And I happened to know the person at the time who was in charge of child protection in our state. And I handed her the letter and I said, this is what parents are having to do. And she started having conversations at her at the department level and, you know, statewide, and they started changing some approaches to how they were handling parents with mental health concerns. And years later, I told this state agency lady, I said, hey, do you remember that letter I gave you? And she said, yeah. And I said, do you did I ever tell you who wrote it? And she said, no. And I said, the lady who wrote it is now the chair of your citizens review panel for <laughs> child protection. You've been working with her for years. That was the first time she felt heard. That was the first time she felt like she, her voice and her experience was important. And it's the first time she volunteered to be on a committee. And now she is at the state level changing systems because you were willing to hear her. And that's an important piece. Everyone gives a lot of great praise to a statewide system of care where I worked, mm -hmm. and it's been in existence for two decades. And when I mentioned to people, the structure, the way this was set up, was actually written by parents. 
-hmm. and former youth who are involved, completely structuring, not just writing a, a kind of a, a general framework, specifics. And then governor of the state of New Jersey, Governor uh, Whitman wrote uh, that this is what our system of care, based upon the feedback that I've gotten directly from the parents, caregivers, and former youth who are involved. I try my hardest every single time to make sure people are aware that the reason for the success has been because of the starting point of restructuring. So thank well, that. And I think what you said, I need to highlight one thing. It wasn't mm -hmm. just that they had this great idea and that they knew what needed to be done. It's that someone listened to them. Exactly. And because one doesn't do any good without the other. That's right. That's and, right. And the system failed them. And therefore, what they found, and, and some of the people who wrote the concept paper I've known throughout my time, said the reason why we were doing this is that we don't want a family to ever have to go through what we went through. So you're absolutely right. Right. And, you know, I know that I, you know, I have been doing this work in Idaho now. I think my first contact with it was the fall of 2016. Mm -hmm. And that seems like it was yesterday and a lifetime ago, all mm -hmm. at the same time. And I can tell you that um, I had that moment of realization that um, I met a group of parents that were all had kids like mine. And less than two weeks later, I was thrown into the deep end of the pool and I was actually reaching out to people I'd known for two weeks and saying, what do I do? And I quickly realized that every service I had access to, somebody else had fought for and probably hadn't benefited from. And and because of the fight that they had had, um, I was able to get services that I needed for my kiddo. And when they said, you know, well, do you want to have a voice on, you know, on what's changing in our state? Would you like to volunteer your time to do that? I would have thrown elbows to get to the front of the line to volunteer mm -hmm. because I had a lot of opinions on what needed to change. Um, but I remember a, a state employee said to me, um, you know, I thanked him for the opportunity to be at the table. And he said, I don't understand why parents keep thanking me for this opportunity. You're volunteering your time. Why are you thanking me for volunteering? And I said, because this is the first time anyone has ever listened to what we had to say. And we don't want our experience to be anyone else's experience. And we give value to our story by changing it for someone else. And I'm not sure at the time if he understood. I don't know. Maybe he does now. But that's why I was grateful. But that's also why parents who get to the table aren't likely to leave. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And rightly so. They have a lot more to say. And and it's not just the nominal putting someone at the table and giving that, that label of they have a family experience or lived experience. The value and the professional level of, of what's being brought in now – Knowing your background in um, civil engineering, having great conversations <laughs> on how your your you, your mind logically thinks so incredibly because of the expertise that you've gotten in your field, and then applying it. And, and I always say, it's incredible how we should be borrowing uh, instead of starting from square one. Rather, we should be incorporating logical frameworks. And so that's how this this yes. amazing conversation started. Yeah, uh, I think we were. I think we were actually talking at the beginning about parents who, when they volunteer at state level systems, they bring all of themselves to the table. Yes. And so, you know, I don't just show up and be a parent who has a kid with a mental health concern. There's so much more to me. And in this case, I'm a civil engineer, and other parents I've worked with have mental health credentials, or are business owners, or have been in corporate America. They all have these massive experiences they bring with them. And I think one of the um, 
unfortunate truths of, of systems is when we bring a parent to the table as a, you know, an air quote stakeholder, we, there's this expectation that they're going to sit there and only have parent thoughts about their children during their time, you know, and about the topic on the table. And they have no other thoughts that are relevant to our question. But at the same time, we have very vastly experienced people sitting at the table that you wouldn't normally hire for this position. And you um, you have the opportunity to tap their knowledge and very few systems do. So I think our conversation started there. And then I brought up um, an engineering example of what I thought was wrong with <laughs> systems and you got a pretty good kick out of it. But um, this, and do you want me to just jump into my example? I, I got it? a great kick out of it because one, you gave me something where, um, even though I'm systemically trained in thinking, I'm not trained at all in how uh, engineering works. So when you started with the box and the mar the marbles or ping points, that for me was truly, I, I mentioned that while we were chatting, I was on the phone going to um, uh, an actual meeting away from my home, which the first face-to-face -face meeting I've had in a while, I actually had to pull over to write down before I forgot the, um, the things that you <laughs> shared with me. So I'd love, <laughs> Well, you, you may be the first person who has ever immortalized my words. So um, so to, I guess to share the, the whole example, um, when when you're when you're designing a system with an engineering look and I'm as I said, I'm a civil engineer and I I did roads and, and sewers and storm drains. And um, I did a lot of, you know, just basic local civil engineering. I am not going to be the one who's going to build you a freeway, but I am going to make sure that your local um, roads and sewers and storm drains work. So. Um, when you're designing a system in engineering, you have, um, imagine a box. So um, you've got this box, and if you've got a whiteboard, draw draw a box on the, on the board. That's what you're looking at. And in the center of this box is what your normal design is, right? You're responsible for everything in the box. The whole box is your requirements. You got to do this, right? Most of the stuff you're doing is in the center of the box. Imagine marbles or pinpoints in the, imagine, in the middle of the box. And those are right in the dead center of your design criteria. And then you have stuff, they're called edges and corners. Boxes have edges and corners. And those are your points, your marbles that are sitting right on the edge or shoved in the corner. They're still in your box, you're still responsible for them, but they may not fit all of the design standards that you have and, and on the design that you want to create as a civil engineer. So a real life engineering example would, well, I guess I'll back up. Before I give you an engineering example, let's talk about mental health who's in the box, right? So let's start with who's in the center of our box. The center of our box is probably kiddos who um, who need a counselor, maybe need to talk to a therapist, maybe need some med management. Um, they're going to interact with those systems. Everyone knows where the therapist's office is, where the, you know, where the doctor's office is. Our, our um, insurance systems know how to get a referral from one to the other. We know how to get them on the wait list and get them into the office. We know how to have a conversation. Parents know what those things are to ask for them. They're pretty common. They're the dead center of our mental health systems box. We're good at it. We know how to do it. It happens. I mean, barring um, work uh, workforce shortages, we've got this to be a well-oiled machine, right? We understand this. Okay, so let's toggle back to engineering. What are our edges and our corners then? If the center is what we know how to do well, what are our edges and corners? So imagine that you are responsible for building roads uh, for a small town. And it's, a, you know, the small town has done a lot of prep work. They know exactly what their roads wanna look like. 
they have a cross section. Maybe you want, you know, a three lane road, you know, one road, one direction, either side to turn lane. You want sidewalks, curb and gutter. Maybe you want pretty trees on the edges or maybe you have a center tree island. I don't know, but you've got a beautiful road cross section and you're going to make your 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 box, your town have these roads. Pretty proud of it. Done a lot of work on it and you're ready. OK, here's a problem. You have towns all the way around you who have already built roads. And guess what? They stop building the roads on the edge of their city limits because they're not responsible for your roads. So they stop right there on their limits. And you go to build a road and you realize, oh darn, their road looks nothing like my road. They have an eight lane highway and I'm only gonna put in a three lane road. Or maybe they have a cart path and that's all they've got. And I'm putting in a three lane road with tree lined streets. It doesn't match. So you've got a couple options. You could build your road section exactly up to the city limits and it will not connect to that other road. So you're gonna go from an eight lane highway down to a three lane road or vice versa. And it's gonna be a big nasty mess. You could decide I'm not connecting to that nope 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 and you could start your road 100 feet away and then you can build exactly what you want and you don't have to worry about what you're touching but now we've got this 100 feet of nothing and you've got people driving on one road and then what are they supposed to do like use a pogo stick to jump over in their car <laughs> to your road no that's not going to work or you can start with what you've got and you can transition into what you want which is Typically what happens because people frown on having no road in between and people <laughs> frown on having no transition between an eight lane super highway and, and a three lane road. So we, we transition. So, all right, so that's one edge case. You've got a town that you're connecting, but let's take this out of roads and take it into water. Mm -hmm. So if you've got a storm drain and it's coming from your other town, storm drains are typically gravity fed. We just put it in a pipe and let it run downhill. We like it when water runs downhill. It's easy, it's quick, it's pretty painless. It just does it all by itself, no thought attached. But if you're at the edge of your town, you stop building storm drain. You don't build someone else's storm drain, you stop at the edge of your box, right? So what happens when there's no storm? The drain is dry, life is good, no one cares where it stopped, but now you have a flood. It rains and rains and rains and the water pours into the drain and it starts running downhill. What happens if there's just an end to the pipe? It just stops. Well, then the water shoots out some random place <laughs> and you have a big nasty mess. So if I am tasked with picking it up at my city limits, the edge of my box, I don't get to decide what size pipe you used or what materials you use. I don't even get to look at your design flow, how much you're bringing in. I have to take exactly what you're giving me whenever the storm hits. That's my job. And if I don't, there's a big mess on the other side, but the mess is in my box, not in your box, it's in my box. And I don't wanna mess in my box. So remember water runs downhill, other things do too, but water specifically <laughs> runs downhill and, and when it gets deep enough, it's now too far down and I can't do anything with it because it's not where I want it to go yet, but I've run out of down. Maybe I've, in engineering, maybe I've hit bedrock. Maybe I've hit um, a building 
maybe there's a building right there with a basement. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe I run into another utility that's already there and I can't go any deeper. I'm stuck. So what do you do? Well, engineers, we put in things called lift stations. We stick a pump in the ground and we lift it up to a higher elevation and put it in another pipe and let it start gravity flowing all over again. Okay. And I have to put in a lift station, which is intentional. I give it power. I put it in a building or a structure to protect it. It has on and off switches. It knows when to run. It's automatic. And I am not actually, and it's usually in a manhole or a manhole-like structure, kind of like a, a, you know, a big tank of some mm-hmm. variety, different ways to do that. I actually don't sit at the bottom of the tank waiting for the storm water to come running into the into the pipe because, well, A, I'd be a little obnoxious to sit in the bottom of a pit in the dark for all my life, but also a bucket brigade is not going to be effective when a stormwater flow comes in. And and I don't have a group of people that I can radio and say, hey, everyone get your favorite bucket and meet me in the hole. We've got some bailing to do. Mm-hmm. That's not how it works. And no one wants it to work that way either. Mm-hmm. Um, so the pump say, okay, we hit a level, we hit a, a threshold, the pump switches on, it pumps it up to the top, it starts into a new pipe, it goes upon its merry way, And we repeat that process as many times as possible to get it to wherever we want it to be. All right. So how do we relate this back to a mental health system? What are our edges and corners? Well, our edges might be kids that are in the juvenile justice system who are coming back to our community and don't have um, a stable um, environment because they've been gone for a while. It could be a child with mental health concerns who's also medically fragile who needs mental health care that coincides with very significant medical needs. It could be a child who has a very strong family network who's willing to help, but a very different cultural background that doesn't um, appreciate the way we've set up our system. It doesn't make sense or it's not culturally sensitive and it makes them feel uncomfortable to use it. It could be a child who is in foster care and um, requires very intense supports because their natural family support system is gone. Um, It could include kids who have, um, and this one is hard for systems, really hard for systems, highly intelligent, highly functional in school, but are not functional in the community or at home. And and everyone just assumes, you know, well, it must be their family or it must be their community system. And that's not true. It's that where their skill set is or their triggers are, education may be where they thrive. Or we may have a kid who's the flip, who does really great at home. And the minute he walks into the school, falls apart, and we have a really hard time educating this kid. These are all stormwater surges that we get. And we don't have all of those kids walking through our, you know, the edges of our box every day, it comes in spurts. So our system has to be designed for it because if it isn't just like the water, we'll have a big mess in our box that came from somebody else's box. And historically we've seen this because when you think of the 80, 20 rule, which we just had a a webinar highlighting this need to change where 80% of our resources are really focusing in on 20% of the population in which we serve, you can apply that just like you just said, all the uh, the individuals um, that have complex medical needs, the, the edges and corners of the box where we're strong meeting the needs of the, the uh, folks that we already have 
in the middle of the box. In the middle, yeah, where the roads are connected. And, and I, I'll, I'll never forget the visuals on this because it, it, for me, if it make it, if, if it's concrete, it can make it, a, it can make a difference. If it's abstract, people all, well, but we are working and dealing, you know, and being hopefully sh sharing a journey with those that we serve. So these are people, these are human beings, mm -hmm. our, our brothers, sisters, mothers, fathers, our community. Does members. the center of your box, your road system, do you any good if you never connect it to the edges of your town? Not because you can't go anywhere. Nope. You can't do anything. You're stuck. You're stuck in the center of your box and we need these connections. So the unfortunate truth is when it comes to systems like mental health, we do not live in a, a four sided square box. We live in a polygon that has an infinite edges and infinite corners that we need to be able to handle. So how do you meet infinite edges and infinite corners when you haven't even met some of the things that are possible to come into your town? or into your system at any given moment, how do you design a system? And, but my, I guess I would ask the question, how do you not? <laughs> because, right. I mean, my town is gonna dry up and be rather, it's gonna be a ghost town when everyone packs up their wagons and heads out because I have no roads that connect to their right. town. They're gonna be, gonna be out of town pretty fast when the stormwater hits and it just floods the town because we have no way to move it from one side of the system to the other. And and we don't want a system that we spend all of this effort on in the center falling apart. Nope. And we, we know states that have really tried their hardest to say we have the values and principles of wraparound. And in Idaho, it's the youth empowerment services, which the curriculum that you wrote uh, and and um, and getting feedback and, 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 and input from a lot of different uh, stakeholders who've been through the system and understand. But if we want to keep people in our home, in their homes, in their communities, safe, happy, healthy, it makes total sense when you're you're not putting them in an island where everything dries up. Right. It's, just, it's, it's simple. It's it's, it's, it's very simple, but yet it's very complex, right? right. Mm -hmm. And so I would say from an engineering standpoint, if I'm having to, um, if I'm having to meet my neighboring town with exactly the design they have at the edge of my city limits, and I don't have a choice, I have to match to what already exists. Mm -hmm. The very first thing I do as an engineer is I go learn about their system. So like, okay, so you've got a road that's 20 feet wide and you have asphalt that's, you know, three inches thick and you have a base course of gravel underneath it. I mean, like I find not just the high level, you have a road. I can see that. I can, I can open my eyeballs and say, yep, that's a road. I actually go and ask them for their design documents. What did you use? What was your criteria to design? Now, there's the possibility that that beautiful road section I told you about with this tree-lined streets, that it may not be as fabulous as I thought it was. When I find out what my neighbor's design criteria was, I might be like, whoa, we live in a desert and putting tree-lined streets means I have to water them and I don't have any water to water those trees, so maybe I shouldn't add trees or maybe I should. Like, it gives me more input to determine whether or not my system is what I want it to be. But it also, even if I hate their system, even if I'm like, yeah, that's the worst road section I have ever seen. <laughs> and I don't know why you think using plastic straws for your storm drain is going to be enough, but I'm going to use concrete pipe. Even if I realize their design is not going to meet my needs and probably isn't even meeting theirs, I still have to meet them where they are. Yep. 
And so if I understand the system, so here's a good one. So we have a kid who has been in a juvenile justice placement. They're in the custody of the state and they're being released back to their home. But <laughs> we have a but here, mm -hmm. but they have whatever their offense was, was against a sibling. Mm -hmm. OK, and we have a judge that says this child may not be back in the home until following steps have been taken. OK, those steps are outside the purview of the juvenile justice system. They aren't something that justice can continue to hold the child for. But the judge has said this kid can't come home. All of these issues revolve around a mental health issue. OK, you know, what do they say when they're closing down the bar? You, you, you don't you don't have to go home, but you can't stay here. <laughs> <laughs> that I think I think that's the phrase. Um, yep. That's kind of what happens. Justice says you can't stay here. We have to release you statutorily. We can't keep you in jail just because you have no place to go. Mm -hmm. So you have to leave. But the judge says you can't go home. And we have a kid with significant mental health needs who now has no place to be. What do you do? So That's you, an edge in a corner. Yep, you, an edge in a corner. A other town being the Juvenile Justice Commission, the judge ordering mental health, behavioral health, having their specific pipes or now straws and different things. So how do you make it work? You definitely would have liked to have concrete pipes, but you weren't you didn't have that yet. So structuring something down the road, right. hopefully to, to meet the needs makes total sense. So that means we need a system in place for I mean, because the the knee-jerk reaction is we have a kid a family right yep. now oh my goodness we're going to solve this problem yep. we're going to make it work we're going to keep everybody safe we're going to get this done we're going to get to the other side we're going to all collapse in a pile because it was an awful lot of work that bucket brigade was going 90 miles an hour while we had this problem everybody's tired and sweaty and frankly yep. we don't want to be around each other anymore too much quality time in the pit we're done and no one writes down what they did. No one documents how they got through to get the kid to safety on the other side of the system. No one writes it down because, and I'm, I'm putting air quotes for those of you who cannot see me, <laughs> because this is a one-off. It's yes. unique. This is never going to happen again. And my comment would be until it happens again. Yes. And so what the takeaway as an engineer for me would have been is I need a standing group of people who understand the juvenile correction system and the laws they have to follow while they're in custody. I need a group of people who know, understand the mental health transition, who partner with those justice people months, not days, not weeks, months before that child is released so that we can start working on community-based relationships and solutions. I need a parent advocate who understands what it's like to have a kid show up in your home who, you know, is dangerous because, by the way, one of those proposed solutions for that situation I mentioned was for the parents to separate and to have one parent live in a hotel oh. with the child for two years until he turned 18. Oh. That was one of the suggestions on the table. The other suggestion on the table was, well, if they're not willing to do that, they've abandoned this child. And so we should put them on the child abandonment, abuse and abandonment registry, which would have cost them their jobs. Mm -hmm. And and then they would have not had one home or two because they would have been unemployed and homeless. Mm -hmm. And um, and when I got involved, I'm like, that's not a solution, people. That's not even a bucket brigade. That's watching it all ooze out on the ground. Doesn't mm -hmm. work. But the, the solution there is to create a team of people who that is their specialty. That is the edge and corner that they know how to do. 
and your whole system knows to contact them when that storm flow comes in. Instead of calling the bucket brigade, you ask them which lift station you need to get into their pipe system, into their next part of the system. That's just one example. We have one of my favorites, and I'm using favorites very sarcastically, is that um, when we have a kid who is very aggressive, who needs mental health care, and they're not safe at home because of siblings or parents or whatever, and they're harming themselves and others, and they need to be not at home for their safety and their families, and they need psychiatric care. Mm-hmm. You know what one of my air quotes favorite comments that gets made to parents? Listen. Well, he's too, he or she is too aggressive for a residential treatment facility, so you're going to have to keep him at home. Wait a minute. they're too aggressive for the professionals who work eight or eight to 12 hour shifts and have alone time and go home and a new fresh staff comes in. They're too aggressive for treatment, but you've told me that they can't get treatment until they're a danger to self and others. So they're supposed to be politely a danger to themselves and others, Mm -hmm. because if they're aggressively a danger to themselves and others, then it's my responsibility. So, could you give me a, a comprehensive list of polite ways to be a danger to themselves and others? Mm-hmm. I mean, how many kids yeah. hit danger to self and others in a completely quiet, polite, and socially acceptable fashion? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. but our system still considers those edge and corner cases. Yes, they do. How do we treat kids who are aggressive when they cannot stay in their home because of said aggression? I have seen so many groups of professionals running around in circles like their heads are falling off because they cannot answer that question. And Why I, can't I, they answer that question? Yeah, and usually when you think about it, how, depending upon how close the um, that, that individual circumstance was looking at that person at the edge of the uh, um, of the box and so forth. And when you're still dealing with a crisis situation, you can't respond in a way. So like you said, taking notes, figuring out what can we do when there isn't a crisis situation going on. And I love this because when you're talking, I'm thinking of we do have pipes. We do have these structures that often don't get brought in uh, as as often as they should on, on creating pipes to, to match all the needs and connecting all the the pipes together. In California, I've learned in terms of the social uh, systems of care uh, uh, rollout, AB 2083, there's these amazing groups, interdisciplinary leadership teams. And then in New Jersey, where I served uh, almost two decades, there's the Children's Interagency Coordinating Council, which is very specific to each and every county so that there can be this collaboration. But if you don't start with the belief that the roads are not connecting, the the pipes are not coming together. We need to have a structure that meets all, especially those at the edges and corners. Well, I mean, my um, another another thing that we we hear a lot and this happened in my family Mm -hmm. and and the joke is don't lie to me. It's not a joke, but don't lie to me. Mm -hmm. Um, And I say it's a joke because someone will say, oh, well, we have a program for that. No, you don't. My no. kid is my kid is too old or too yep. young or the wrong yep. gender or lives in the wrong county or we have too much insurance or not enough insurance or the yep. wrong insurance. So don't lie to me. Right. And and so when my kiddo uh, was requiring some very intense services, which everyone agreed he qualified for, mm-hmm. someone came back and said, 
oh, but wait a minute, he has the wrong kind of Medicaid. Isn't that, wow. And I'm like, the wrong kind. Oh, yeah. He has the access that says that he gets access because he, you're going to take care of it in the home. So if he leaves the home, you're not taking care of it, so you lose access. Okay. <laughs> so, but if he leaves my home, is he eligible for any other Medicaid? Well, we don't know. Uh, 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 okay. So the care he needs that insurance pays for will invalidate his ability to have insurance to pay for it. Yes. Okay, so what are we going to do here? I don't know. So they told me to take him home. And I said, but he isn't safe to be home. Everyone in this group agrees to it. In fact, you've all approved a residential treatment facility, but you want me to take him home because he has the wrong insurance. And they went, yes. And so we found a way through it. We actually found a way to transition him to the correct insurance. And when we were done, I said to the person at the state, please document this so that the next family, you guys won't have to figure it out. We'll just know how to connect them. And I am not kidding you. The direct statement made to me in all my years here, this has never happened. It will never happen again. There's no point in me writing this down. It will never happen. Because they, they I, yeah. I personally have helped probably 10 plus families who have the exact same access issue navigate the system. And I have had to remind the exact same staff member each time how we made it through the system. And you just shared that that, that story. For me, that visual would be for the, see that family and understand their needs, lining up all the buckets that could that could be utilized to get the water. But you can't take those buckets because yeah, that one doesn't work. That one doesn't work. We that put a one. hole in this bucket. <laughs> put a hole in the bucket because it only works for this particular. If it was, mm-hmm. so if if recognizing that you don't want to um, harm someone and go from that premise and you want to help, doesn't it make sense from an engineering standpoint that we do away with buckets and bucket brigades and begin to make that shift? And to pumps to, and lift stations with automatic triggers. Yes. Yes. That's just it. Well, and here's the other thing. Why would I not be able to design for the storm drain coming in? Remember how I told you that I will, first thing I do as an engineer is I go find their design plans and figure out what criteria they used. The reason we struggled to do that is because the, (laughs) the, the, the pipe or the road belongs to a different system silo. Mm-hmm. And we guard our silos like we are dragons sitting on our horde, and we don't like sharing. If I tell you how my system works, then you might see something wrong with it. Or you might try and touch my funding. Mm-hmm. Or or you're going to poach my staff. Mm-hmm. Or someone might notice that we're not as efficient and as effective as we've been telling everyone we are. Or... Someone might notice that we have a lot of staff working on this and they don't have nearly as many staff and they're going to get someone to reassign the legislative dollars that go to fund this program over to them. If I pretend like you can't see me, yes, then I'm not on your radar. It's like a toddler who plays peekaboo. If they cover their eyes with their hands, mm-hmm. you can't see them either, right? If they can't see you, you can't see them. And we watch these silos and... Um, I think one of the funniest moments I ever had was when I was I got to actually see faces in a meeting when we were discussing the concept of blended versus braided funding. Mm-hmm. And and I think I started watching people convulse a little bit because mm-hmm. if we put our money into a pot that everyone can use to access because we're all trying to do the same thing, then how do I know how my dollar was spent? 
it's like someone writes their name on their dollar bill before they put it in the pot and they watch their dollar bill until they see it get spent. What if it gets spent the wrong way? And we're going to braid it. That means I have to talk to you. I have to be neck. I have to interact with you. <laughs> and if we blend it, who gets to be inside? I'm going to be responsible for all the money if we do that. Right. And I'm, I sat there watching them and you know, the, the, the um, memes that come out from the old, the original Charlie and the Chocolate Factory with Gene Wilder, and he, and the, the meme is always go on, yep. right? Yep. That is how I felt. Go on. Like I'm gonna watch you have this argument until you wear yourselves out, and then I'm going to ask you why it is that your silo is so sacred to you. Let's see. You actually use the the, um, uh, the word or. And mm-hmm. for me, especially since we're going to be presenting at mm-hmm. the TCOM uh, 2022 oh. this September, in the, the really getting into the land, away from or, and into la- the land of and. So if we are talking about systems of care, mm-hmm. and from that framework and values and principles that we all as systems people need to you know uh, understand and believe in, truly believe in, and that there are some children and families, maybe they're multiple, maybe even the majority of, will have multiple systems involvement, that we must understand that it will be juvenile justice and behavioral. Well, I mean, every child (laughs) is likely to have, if they have a mental health concern, and education, because they're in school. So, I mean, there's always an and, and if we choose to force families to break off the parts of their lives into different systems, it's not effective. Um, there was a, a, a dear lady in Idaho who um, used to work for the state, but she she made this comment. She said that they had a child that she was working with at one time, and um, one one treatment provider had said, oh my goodness, this kid is not getting enough sleep. We need to make sure this kid, no electronics, no, you know, cut down on physical activities in the afternoons. We need the kid to be able to fall asleep, get a solid night's sleep. Everything is because this kid's not getting enough sleep, right? And they had at the exact same time another treatment provider who's like, oh, my kid, goodness, this kid is a slug. We need to get him out. We need to get him active. We need to get him involved in things. He's sleeping too much. We need to make sure. How is the family supposed to be compliant with both of these providers at the same time and one of them is going to say this kid is absolutely treatment resistant and is refusing to to follow the advice of their provider and it's because those two providers were siloed and instead of sitting together at the same table and saying hey you know i see this kid being a slug i this kid's a slug because they're not sleeping enough We need to have a conversation about how to get some quality sleep and then transition to activities that wear them out so that they sleep well in the evening. And we need to work together here that and would have been family centered. But our or our or world is my system or your system. And and for us in this engineering my road turns into your road and your road turns into my road, depending (laughs) on where, which direction we're going. And we need them to work together so they are usable. Absolutely. And, you know, so I would say, when you said the 80-20 rule, I do a lot of parent advocacy work. Mm -hmm. How often do you think I get called into a team meeting for someone who needs a therapist in med management? Mm -hmm. (laughs) <laughs> versus how often do I get called into a meeting because we have Justice 
who has shown up or we have, you know, they've got a, a, a complaint at the state department of education level because of their mental health not connecting to their educational needs. Or how often do I get called in when we have families being threatened with child protection because they have indicated this is the edge of what we can do for our kid. We need help. Well, you must be a bad parent because if you are in child protection, you couldn't possibly need any of these other services because the only problem is you're a bad parent. I have sat in many conversations where the solution is to take the kid out of the home. The only change is not going to be new med- mental health care. It's not going to be new access to services. It's not going to be um, you know, a new community with a new support system. No, they're maybe moving down the street. The only change is that the parents are going to change, which implies that the parents were incompetent is the only reason the kid has a mental health mm-hmm. issue. Mm-hmm. And so it's you are a good parent or we're going to do these things, not you are a good parent. You need help and we're going to help you find it. See, and that's the way we should be thinking, because if you think about the lenses we're supposed to be looking towards or through trauma informed, we say what's wrong with you versus we say in terms of being trauma you know uh, mm-hmm. responsive is that what's happened to you what what what's what have you experienced how can i help you and that shift just in those words alone be, moves away from the or to the and so, so i i want to throw i want to throw a monkey wrench in our analogy here it's not actually monkey wrench it's just a another design criteria we have to look at when we're looking at engineering i'm glad you did that because i want my roads to connect and i want my pipes to match yes it's a flow well here's the thing a storm drain have you ever seen a flash flood i'm from new jersey so we have most of our state <laughs> uh, yes yes it's, okay so and, and everyone can probably go Google a good flash flood if they don't know what I'm talking about. But what ends up happening is I am standing in an area that is completely dry. The sun might be shining, birds are chirping, life is good. And I grew up in Arizona. So I'll use an Arizona example. And I am in a dry desert. It is so dry. I mean, oh my goodness, I'm choking on the dust dry. <laughs> and I hear a sound. Huh, I wonder what that sound is. And I kind of look around me and I kind of look off in the distance and I see this kind of this weird dirt wall. Mm-hmm. Wait a minute. The dirt wall's moving. Wait a minute. The dirt wall's not dry. It's water. And wait a minute. It's six feet tall. It's coming at me. And is it just water? No, it is not. It is dirt. It is trees, cars, people, mm-hmm. houses. Mm-hmm. Anything it can, it's in its path, it's bringing with it. And I have a couple options. One is to stand there and be part of what it's going to drag down the, down the drain or, you know, downstream, or I can get the heck out of Dodge and I can get to higher ground. But if I stay in that mess, I'm going to get swept away. Okay. Mm-hmm. Eventually that storm is, if, especially if it's in town, is likely to hit a storm drain. So does the storm, the storm drain has a grate on it. It's supposed to keep the flotsam and jetsam out, but it doesn't. And so what gets swept into this drain? Is it just pure sparkly water? No, no, it's at the very least dirty water, but chances are small branches and trees and junk. And a good storm drain system actually has a pretty robust filter system that helps pull that stuff out. But it go, it travels for a distance and there are, Here's a fun fact. Do you know why pipes have manholes? 
I don't. <laughs> no. I... So, okay, a couple reasons. There's lots of reasons. They Pipes are straight, right? In general, these types of pipes are straight. You don't put flexible pipe in for these types of situations. So a concrete pipe doesn't just take a right turn. It just, it goes in a straight direction. And if you made it so it took a right turn, what would happen? Things would get wedged in that corner. So a manhole is because a man can go down into the hole <laughs> to clean it out. <laughs> it also helps you change elevation, change direction. It is a maintenance hatch. Okay. That, okay. And I mean, there's other reasons for manholes, but those are the majority of the reasons for manholes. Their equipment can go in there. It's a place that you can access to, you know, help the pipe. And when you have junk stuck in your pipe, you use manholes to access it from both ends based on the size of the pipe is how far apart your manholes have to be. If you have a ginormous diameter pipe, your manholes can be pretty far apart. If you have a really small pipe, your manholes are pretty close together because it's the distance you need to maintain the pipe, okay? And so in a storm drain, you've got junk that's just shoved in the pipe and it's plugged up and you're thinking, oh no, one of two things is gonna happen. Either the pressure behind the water is gonna shove that through like a chute and projectiles are gonna come shooting down your pipe or your pipe is plugged and now you're backing up and whatever was supposed to be emptying in is now flooding. That's what happens if you have a clogged pipe. So I, as a parent, I show up to you, chances are like a clogged pipe. I have had all the things thrown at me. I have been wedged into a system that I may not fit into. I desperately want to get to the other side of this but I have been told I have the wrong insurance or too much or too little. My kid's too old or too young. The pipe starts getting narrower on me, but I'm still wedged in it. <laughs> Somebody has got to pull me out of the pipe. And this is when our systems have to look to those principles of care, things like unconditional, family-centered, family voice and choice. I should probably get a choice on how you yank me out of that pipe. Mm -hmm. Because there's some options. I mean, you could just break the whole pipe and pull me out, but then the system's broken and that doesn't work. You could, you know, use the grandma method of greasing me with butter and hoping I shoot through it. <laughs> um, but then I'm going to end up messy and gross and probably pretty bruised on the other side. You could back me out and pull me through the back system, the system I was just in, and pull me back into it to see and get me to a manhole on that side to clean me off. Um, you could have installed screens sooner so that I never got caught in the pipe to begin with. <laughs> that would have been nice. Um, there's many things that have to happen, but am I comfortable stuck in a pipe? Mm -hmm. Am I happy to be stuck in a pipe? Do I have a lot of pressure building up behind me in this pipe? Yes. And so when we're dealing with parents who have been shoved through systems that do not fit them, they are angry. They are uncomfortable, but most of all, they feel alone mm -hmm. because no one is shoved in that pipe with them except for their family. And the system that put them there may not even know they're stuck because if they've passed the last manhole, oh, not my problem anymore. Brush my hands off and I'm done. But the next system doesn't know they're there yet because they haven't arrived. And we have a lot of families stuck in systems in between one point and the other, right there on the corners and edges, mm -hmm. who no one even knows are stuck. And so I would say that the first step of any system 
is finding the people that are stuck (laughs) and hearing their story. There's nothing more frustrating to a parent than having someone say something like, oh, I've been doing this for a lot of years. I've got it. No, you have known me for a hot second. You don't know why I'm stuck in the pipe. You don't know what storm I went through to get stuck in this pipe. You have no idea how far we traveled before we got wedged into this system. You have no idea how many scary branches and uncomfortable things are wedged in here with me. And you don't know if we're drowning. You just know that you're the keeper of the pipe. I don't fit in your pipe. Thus, I'm stuck. How do you help me get to a pipe I fit? How do you help put me on a road that connects? How do you lift me up to start my journey in the correct direction to the correct destination? And if you can't tell me those things, but you say something like, well, but you're not in my system yet, so you're not my problem, or you already left that system, you can't go back. Like a kid who gets out of residential care and within three or four days, everyone realizes they were not ready to transition home. They have to start the process all over for acceptance again. Do you know what the number one denial is for residential? I no. mean, and I'm, I'm guessing it's the number one, but it's the one I hear about the most. Well, it didn't help the last time. So why would it help this time? See, that's you discharged me too early. I wasn't done with treatment. Oh, well, it obviously doesn't work. I'm now stuck in a pipe. The system I came from doesn't want me. The system I'm going to doesn't doesn't know I exist and doesn't want me. How do I, as an engineer, mm-hmm. design for a stuck pipe? Well, if you, if you talk to others outside, uh, when I was a clinical director for a care management organization, um, we were having children or youth that were involved in out-of-home treatment for years, even before they came op- became open to us. And... Um, so the, the the question for discharge wasn't because they've been here too long. They should have gone home or what. The question becomes, how can we make the transition back home successful? It turns out. And the out question that, there is, what services do they have in their community? Because I, if I lived in a community with every resource, what my level of ready to discharge is going to look different than if I live in a rural community that has telehealth once a month if the well, Internet is working. And that means I have a different level of stability that is needed or a different level of coping skills or different level of strategies and techniques that is going to be required to be successful than the other child. So my answer to you on what do I do as an engineer Mm -hmm. is a very non-engineering answer. The answer is I need some system Mm self-care. And self-care is not sitting on the couch, binge watching Netflix and eating bonbons. That is not what self-care is. Self-care is doing something today that my future self will appreciate and thank me for. So system self-care is us doing something today that our future system is going to thank us for. So before I have a branch stuck in a pipe, I should have installed what they call a trash rack to catch all the things that aren't water um, so that the branch got caught upstream and we were able to deal with it appropriately before it ever got wedged into a pipe it didn't fit into. Self-care and engineering is making sure your road design accommodates the number of people who need to travel on it. That is system self-care. That is making sure your lift station, the pump triggers at the appropriate level so you don't have a bunch of effluent or stormwater sitting in a pit for a long time building mosquitoes. 
Self-care is looking at the problems that are coming down the road and finding a solution for them before you have to rip the road apart or before you have to rip the pipe apart, before you have to start over with your system design because it is so broken that you can't save it. So how do you do that? And my answer to that question would be who's on your team? Who is on your design team? If you only pick people who think exactly like you, you are only going to solve problems that you already know about. In other words, you will live the rest of your your system life in the center of the box. And 80% of your resources will go to the bucket brigades that are living on your edges and corners. You will never see system progress. You will never see family satisfaction. You will never see a need for reduced services because you will always be in crisis mode. You will always be doing the same thing over and over again. Now, what if your team consisted of people who had already experienced your edges and corners? They knew what they looked like. What if I brought in the engineer who had designed the road on the other side? Then to be a little more pessimistic, what if I brought in the construction worker who built the system without a design on the other side, Mm -hmm. who put it together without a plan, and this is what they have, and I understand why they made the -the in-the-moment decisions they made? Because let's be honest, not all of us have beautiful blueprints of of a system on the other side. Some of us have sticky notes on this that have been wadded up on the side of our monitor, and that's all we've got. So how do I bring those people to the table in a non-superficial fashion? I am not trying to put them in a chair, turn a spotlight on them and interrogate them until I know what they know. I am trying to make them an integral part of their system. Now, there are some systems that are admittedly, we got this kid out of our system, not our problem, done. And there are other systems who are worried that when they leave ours, are they going to get what they need? And the partnerships we build on those team making expeditions determine whether or not we are going to create a system that can flow in or out. Because unconditional means we meet families where they are. And if they're in my town and then go back to yours and then come back to mine and go back to yours, I don't actually get to install a gate over the road to keep them out. But many systems spend more time on their gate builders than they do on their connectivity. Mm-hmm. And, and just for the record, emergency services in general are really hard in gated communities because you have to get the gate open to get the emergency services to them, right? A lot of benefits to gates, I get it. But if you have a crisis, having a gate makes the crisis worse because you have to get to it. You want to know a little fun fact about engineering another one? I have a yes. bit of them. <laughs> In designing a community, did you know I was not allowed to approve a design plan that only had one road in? I don't understand. Okay, so let's just say you have this fabulous community in there. It's sunshine and roses. Everything is amazing. You go get into this community and it's, everything's fabulous, right? And I get a 911 call that somebody at the end of the community, the back end of the community, has had a heart attack. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's unfortunate. We're going to dispatch some emergency services, ambulance and fire, you know, paramedics are on the way. We got this. 
and we get to the road into the community and we find out that a storm just blew a giant tree across it. Mm-hmm. Or there was a splash flood and the road's covered. Or heaven forbid, it's a narrow road and the first house, he had a heart attack too and all the emergency services are clogging the road and I can't get to the guy in the back. The guy in the back is in a world of hurt. See. There always has to be two roads in so that if one path is blocked, another one can be accessed for emergency services. How many of us build a second road to our system wow. in case the first one is blocked? I thought having one road would mean direct access. One road, the way you described it, having all the different obstacles, if they're in the way, not being able to access it. So I love it. And there aren't too many um no, because what if I have a kid coming out of juvenile corrections who has mm-hmm. mental health concerns? That's one road. Mm-hmm. Who's medically fragile? Yeah. Oh, that road's blocked because yeah. all the systems we have don't handle his medical needs. That road won't work for us today. We need a road that happens to have nursing staff attached to it or whatever the case may be. So we have to build these access points that allow for us to have different reasons to travel the road and if we can't do that once again we're stuck in the center of our box and eventually our system dies out you you were like oh my goodness laura i did not go to engineering school for a reason (laughs) no because but you know what when you think about this I'm, i'm i'm seeing that if we have a system and there hasn't been a road built but there's always a solution because what you're talking about here is to bring people who've built the system before and talk about transformational teaming where we apply what we would do with a care plan and bring it to the systems level and not just the system self-care and all the getting beyond this to the point where we are truly shifting away from systems of care towards systems that care for outcomes, for transformational outcomes versus oof, they're out of our system, therefore that's not our problem any longer, versus really thinking that these are our children. These are our children within our communities. They might not be open to us. And that's why when I use the term systems, that care, I, I, the pushback, if you will, was, well, I, I don't have I don't have to like everyone. You know, I'll, I'll, you should <laughs> you should find something positive about everyone that you serve, but you, we should respect everyone and we should have that mindset that our system is to do no harm. Systems should move towards systems that care about transformational outcomes. Um, so moderate. this would be the last piece that I think was really important. And um, anyone who knows me in Idaho has heard me say this so many times that I'm sure they're going to chisel it on my tombstone. But it, it, I have told people over and over again, you are not, you think you're building a system, a mental health system of care. That's what you think you're doing, but you're not. You're flat out not building a mental health system of care. You're building a system of trust. Because if I can't trust you, it does not matter anything else that happens. If I don't believe that if I leave the road I'm on and enter on, you know, drive onto your road, that I'm not going to fall into a sinkhole, I'm not going to use the road. If I don't believe that at the end of this system that the pipe is going to put me into a system that is going to take me where I go, I will be, I I refer to it as a cat in a toilet, you know, like that all fours, (laughs) you are not putting me in this toilet. I am staying out here. I am going to brace myself against that next system and you cannot shove me into it because I do not trust you. 
And you could have the best services on the planet on the other side of that manhole or on the other side of that bend in the road. And I do not care if you have lied to me before because I do not trust you now. And my job as a parent is to protect my child and my family and myself. And when you have, and how do you build trust? You do what you say and you say what you do. I will repeat that again for the people in the back. You do what you say and you say what you do, which means you do not tell parents that you can do something that you cannot do. You do not tell parents you can do something you won't do. You don't tell parents you can do something you don't have budget to do. And if you and what you tell them is what you actually do. So if you've told them that you're going to give them a green widget, don't give them a blue one. Mm -hmm. Now, if you're out of green widgets and blue widgets are better, you tell them that. You don't just do something different because we are already managing all the things. If I have a kid that is at a high enough level of need that you are part of my existence, I am already handling all the things, all the things. The things that you don't even know exist, I'm handling them and I'm handling them like a champ. Now, I might look crazy by the time you meet me. My dad always said, insanity is inherited. You get it from your children. <laughs> and and, and I, I might look like a raving loon by the time you meet me because I have handled all the things. And your job is to be honest with me, and but not nasty. Like, eh. Your kids should probably just get arrested. That would be the easiest way to handle it. Whoa, nasty. Yeah. That's not that's not a lift station. That's a wastewater treatment plant. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I, those, those visuals are definitely going to stay with me. You know what I thought about, Laura? And I think this this conversation had to happen. It was almost, I think it was over 20 years ago now since I, I've left uh, the system of care um, that I was working in. But the first conversation I had with someone um, learning about the tools, learning about the the cans and, and uh, Dr. John Lyons, and it popped in my head literally near the end of this, this, this chat. He talked to how responsive our systems should be and how in the past they were this way. He talked about catchment areas around treatment and how it was designed around sewers, uh, sewers. And, and pipes, I, I kid you not, that conversation was 20 plus years ago. And this conversation in talking about the correct way in utilizing civil engineering and moving towards systems as well as, as uh, engineering. Uh, Catchment basins are used to slow things down. That is actually what they are designed to do. You put them in a basin, you either let it soak into the ground or you slow it down so that you don't have a flood moving through. And while it's always good to take a pause and make sure you're going down the right direction, the right path. When the system is actually designed to stop you from getting to treatment, we have a problem. Yeah. So I, in terms of final thoughts, I know that when, when people, I do want to go to engineering school. Tuition wasn't that, <laughs> wasn't that much money uh, and, and uh, I could actually meet the criteria to get in. I would definitely, because I'm, I'm excited about this. And as a systems trained person in the, the field of human services, I can definitely see that we can learn a lot from engineering. But the takeaways, is there hope? Is there a, the point now where we're, we're, we've been dealing with a pandemic for two plus years? 
uh, we've seen the inequities that many families, especially on the edges and corners of boxes, people who have no idea they're even there. Can we move forward? We should move forward. We have the we have that moral in, imperative. We must do this. But is there hope? Yes. And you know what? You know who understands the system better than anyone else? Those who have been stuck in it. Those who have been stuck in it. So, I mean, every system out there has countless families with experiences to share with them. And um, and it's hard to ask these families to share their story. Why is it hard? Because families that had great experiences aren't likely to show up and tell you how fabulous it was. The families that got wedged into a pipe and are stuck there still are the ones who are screaming to be heard. Now, is it comfortable to invite someone to the table who is yelling at you? No, it is not. Now, I am going to tell you, and this is, you know, a bad on me. Well, it's just human. It's not bad. It was human. The very first time someone told me about youth empowerment services, I was asked to join a focus group to give feedback to the state about, you know, the directions they were going as they were starting implementation. <laughs> and we went around the room and everyone told a little bit of their story and why they were at the table and, you know, what their hope was for the future. And my comment was something like this. I haven't figured out why you made me drive four and a half hours to lie to me. And they were like, what? <laughs> and I said, you're saying that you're building this system. You're not. You're lying. Because the last time you said it wasn't there. So why do I believe you now? I'm looking at your website. Your information is outdated. That tells me you're not actually making any progress, but you're telling me you are. You're lying. You're telling me that my kid's going to have access to this, but you don't know how that's going to work. You're lying. Until it exists, you are lying to me. I'm sure the people who had put their blood, sweat, and tears into creating what they had to that moment were pretty overwhelmed. Uh, I may have actually told them the 1980s called and wanted their website back. Um, <laughs> but it was, I said, look, it looks like every other state website, but you're telling me it's different. Visually, I already know you put lipstick on the same pig. I need something that visually tells me you've put effort into this because right now this looks like this is the thing you did so you can get to the your you know to the end of the day and get you know get the promotion to the job you really want. Everybody here is phoning it in. And they were like, no, we're not. I'm like, but that's what it looks like. And I'm not willing to engage with you past what it looks like. So I had the honor and privilege of helping them redesign their first redesign of their state website um, because I wasn't willing to sit on the sidelines and let them lie to me anymore. I jumped in because I wanted the lies to stop. Now, were they intentionally lying to me? No. But when my kid is in the middle of a mental health crisis and what you said exists doesn't, it's a lie. Whether you meant to or not. Because in the moment, I don't care why it's not right. It just isn't. And so I would say that the hope really is you have infinite number of experts on your current system and they can tell you why it's not working mm -hmm. and if you listen to and if you ask them how would you change it are you going to get a lot of unicorns and magic wands yes <laughs> but something as simple as but if when i called you and my system didn't work you, you could already set the meeting up with the person I needed to instead of giving me a number to call. If you could say, it's Susie, 
this is her number. I'm going to call her while you're sitting here and find and schedule an appointment. And I will sit with you until we transfer and she will take it from there. That adds an extra road to our system. If it's as simple as, you know what, I really wish that when you were talking to me, you didn't use acronyms because I have no idea what these things mean. And I look stupid when I am sitting in a meeting having to ask you to stop every third or fourth word to explain an acronym. And and then when I feel stupid, I feel like you're doing it to me, not for me. And I disengage. You're going to hear some things that are so easy to fix like that. You're also going to hear, but you've excluded my child for access and you didn't take into consideration the X, Y, and Z. And I don't understand your appeal process and no one cares about me anyway. So why would I appeal? Because it just takes time I don't have and I'm so overwhelmed. And now you've got a person whose whose solution is to make mom less overwhelmed. She's asking you to install a trash rack before her tree got wedged in the pipe. Mm -hmm. You can't go backwards, but you can fix the system. Water doesn't run uphill. It gets pushed uphill. And so (laughs) so we don't want to shove parents places. We want them to naturally progress. But that means asking them what things they're running over. Mm -hmm. I um, a dear friend of actually both of ours once said and as many times said, that when you get to that point in in your life, when you're handling all the things, you feel like you have one layer of skin left and everybody is a piece of sandpaper. And and when I when you invite parents to the table, you just have to assume that they see you as giant cosmic sandpaper and you are there to tell them that the legacy they can leave is making it better for the family flowing behind them. And I've I've told you this before, Ken, and I'll tell it again. My goal in all of my advocacy is to be forgotten. I want this system to be so seamless, so flawless, and so expected. I want it to be normal. I want the stigma gone. I want the ease of access to be so normal to everyone that the parents in the future never even question whether people like me existed because it doesn't occur to them they needed to. That's why I want to be forgotten. I don't want anyone to need to remember the work I've done. I want it to be just finished. Well, Laura, you truly are a servant leader and what a way to, to, to really just uh, to take away. We do have system of care values and principles. We should do what we say and say what we do. If we align it with the values and principles that have been a standard. And, and, and uh, make them specific. Not, yes. we will meet you where we you are. No. no, no, no. We will meet you in the moment. If that means location, if that means emotionally, if that means support services, define what that means. Because exactly. pie in the sky, I no. called you, I met you where you were. No, you didn't. <laughs> no, and that's really meeting someone where they're at so you can build trust. They say the number one therapeutic sure. intervention is to build rapport. What's rapport? You put down all the different layers. It's someone who can trust and understand that someone has probably already asked for different things, have gotten not the treatment they've they wanted or deserved or needed. Or expected, yeah. They're expected, all those things. So therefore, it's not someone's responsibility who's seeking service. It's our responsibility. And ours is so a plural in that we are all, again, 
part of a system of care if we really think about it. You're an engineer, but you're also a strong advocate and putting together policy and procedures so that we don't let the water rise, the yucky water, and, and we don't push someone through a system where they get shot out and well, you know, or stuck and log jammed forever and forgotten. Exactly. And that's, you know, and, and taking in each individual. So I'm asking everyone to truly think about the edges within the boxes that parts that they see that they have complete control over, because we'd be surprised working in the different towns. If we talk about different systems, we all are responsible to do our jobs uh, and to the best of our abilities. And if we work as part of a team, the transformation in terms of teaming together so we can we can serve, it's not just lip service, it's literally doing what we say and saying what we do. And we don't ever build a system to never be used. So ignoring the users, it seems like you're missing a big part of it. If you install a pipe that isn't sealed and it's leaking out all over the place, your system won't work. And so if you don't pay attention to the people who are using it and, you know, in, in very impersonal terms, they would call this user acceptance testing. Mm -hmm. Right. Or um, but. Systems that ignore those users as an integral part of their design, you don't ask the water to tell you how the pipe was working afterwards. You 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 are you already know the properties of water. You know how water works. You are intimately aware of all, I mean, there's whole classes called fluid dynamics where <laughs> you sit in and learn about what water is going to do so that you design the system. You don't put a whole bunch of pipes together and then fight, figure out what water does. And so with the fact that systems in general try to assume what the families want and need and then build a system on their imagination. And then they're stunned when the unicorns and rainbows don't show up to celebrate it at the end because the system was an imaginary problem. You didn't solve the actual one. You solved the one you imagined you had. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so I would just say every system, use those parents. If that means compensating them for being there because they're they're spending their time there, gas vouchers, childcare, a stipend for their time, Hotel rooms, when they travel to you, all of those things, bring them to the table, show them that they are valuable to you and your system, and you are there to help them, not the other way around. And when it's all said and done, remember that you're bringing the whole human to the table. They're professionals, they're parents, they're educators, they're, you know, expert caregivers because they've been doing this, but they may also be accountants or lawyers or doctors or business owners, engineers, and take the perspective they give you and be grateful that they brought more to the table than you asked them for. Don't ask them to silo their own personalities. Be no. grateful for every part that they give you because those are the real parents, the real bodies of water who are going to be using your system and they're telling you how to design it. Then we get back on our road, we connect, our system flows, our residents are happy, our box handles what it's supposed to, is robust. And you know what? A box with weak edges and corners dissolves, just disintegrates, and everything falls out. So uh, there you go. Beautiful. That's a beautiful, thank you. And I'm guaranteeing that there's going to be a lot of uh, further conversations to be had. So if it's okay to ask you, put you on the spot for further conversations. <laughs> sure. And uh, we, we definitely have an upcoming webinar. We have the TCOM conference. So please stay tuned. Laura, I cannot thank you enough. And I'm sure the listeners. Well, plug for TCOM. Like, we're going to be, you and I are going to be doing that on Wednesday. Yes. 
And so anyone who's coming to TCOM, Wednesday is worth it, I promise. Yes, go to tcomconversations.org <laughs> and you will not just sit in your seat. You will actually do what we're saying and we'll actually say what we do. And you'll be the, the you in there will be plural in this process. So thank you so much. Yes, well, Ken, I can't appreciate it enough. You willing to have this conversation. You know, I don't people don't often give me a soapbox to stand on to, and and to, and to geek out with my engineering. I mean, that's a gift. <laughs> I, it was true, a gift for us. So thank you. <laughs> Thanks, Ken. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Innovation and Care Collaboration Podcast. Be sure to subscribe to the show on Spotify, Apple, or Google, and join us each week as we invite in thought leaders in health and human services to discuss the latest trends in healthcare and technology.